Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is The Journey of Discovery with John Gooden. Hello and welcome along to The Journey of Discovery. I am your host, John Gooden. Thank you so much for clicking play. So this is very exciting. My very first interview on this here podcast and it's with my good friend Dan Hardy. So I'm sure that most of you that are listening to this knew of Dan Hardy before you'd even heard of me, but maybe you're listening back to this and you found this podcast from outside of the wonderful sport of mixed martial arts and you might not know exactly who Dan Hardy is. So let me tell you. Apart from being a good friend of John Gooden and partner on the mic, a UFC commentator and analyst extraordinaire, Dan is a badass fighter. He challenged for the UFC welterweight title a few years ago. He is an author. He has a book out called Part Reptile, UFC, MMA and Me. And more than that, he is one of the most considered and thoughtful people that I've come across. He's got some very strong views on a range of subjects that are sometimes controversial. But I really wanted to get his opinion on a subject that I see more and more in the media. I'm listening to more and more podcasts about it as well. And that is the subject of masculinity. I thought, what better person to speak to about this than someone who fights for a living. So we get into it. Dan is very honest. We talk about everything from his body issues from when he was as young as 12 years old to being an adult and recognizing the need to talk about the struggles that you may be facing. I really enjoyed this chat. I always love talking to Dan and, and learn so very much. Hopefully, I unlocked a couple of new things that perhaps Dan Hardy fans didn't know about Dan. But more than that, I think it's both important to Dan and I, that we show that it's okay to talk about the kind of subjects that are covered in this podcast and, in fact, encourage it. So let's hand it over to the conversation that I had with Mr. Dan Hardy. The topic of masculinity 
it's something that I'm reading about more. Oh, the chances of that. And it just went off. Like, you can't talk about this. Men aren't supposed to not talk about masculinity. Job. It's not. It's not happening. No. <clears throat> How funny is that? <laughs> the very surface level stuff is <clears throat> is appearance, and you are someone that I've spoken to quite openly about a whole range of stuff, which maybe blokes don't talk about. And uh, and you know, you've said stuff to me as well, which has shown elements of vulnerability. You've always been someone who I've, when people have asked me, you know, what Dan, what's Dan like? He's, you know, Dan thinks about stuff, he's evolved, he he sees what's going on very well. So I, I, I really wanted to talk to you about this because I'm interested in your experiences and also where you might be able to help me and then anyone that's listening and watching to this. Specifically because you're an athlete, but a combat sports athlete. And that puts you in a in a very interesting position when we talk about what a man should be. Um, so let's let's talk just the physical stuff then. So when you have been in a room around people and we're getting changed to do various bits and pieces, people would kind of turn away as we would remove t-shirts and stuff. And yeah, listen, don't worry. Listen, I, I've jumped on a scale in front of people. It's it's not it's not an issue. Having said that, I've been with other UFC fighters shooting while they after they've had a workout in the gym. And I've asked for a shot, kind of moody shot, as we've all seen the countdown shoots and what have you. Those that haven't, it's like, it's the build up to a fight and everyone's looking sweaty and, and often quite intimidating. And some have turned around and said they're not willing to take their t-shirt off because they're not at that stage where they probably feel comfortable in their body, which is which is mad, right? We're yeah. talking about some of the baddest guys on the planet. So I, I'm really interested to see how and whether you've experienced any of those issues, you know, what you think about this body dysmorphia that seems to be a, a real problem now. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting topic and one that people aren't really talking about. And, and as, a, as a fighter and as someone that, you know, gets up on the weigh-in stage in my underwear and stands in front of a crowd of people, I mean, that's, that's not a, a normal thing for people to do. <laughs> no. Across most other sports, that doesn't happen. So... That it didn't. It never really bothered me too much, especially because usually when you're stepping on scales, you're in about the best shape you're going to be in anyway. Yeah. And from in my experience, a lot of fighters that you know, if they're filming something earlier on in their career or earlier on in their in their training camp, they are they're more aware of how they look and how that appears to everybody else because mm. they're they're trying to portray this lean, svelte, polished, you know, scary fighting machine that's always ready to go. The reality is that's not the case, you know. I mean, I, I used to go up to two twenty sometimes at a training camp. So I've been I've been chubby at times. I've been soft. I've looked. Mm. I've not looked like an athlete at, at times. And and I've filmed at those times. And I can go back. I mean, this this footage is a, a documentary called uh, uh, "The Fighter" with Chad uh, uh, Chad George, uh, Chad Savage George. It's on um, uh, on Netflix. And there's a there's a scene with me in that, and it was literally. I'd just come back after about three months of... of uh, Is this at Legends? Uh, it was at PKG in, in uh, Hollywood, uh, Culver City, yeah. Okay. It's it's a, it's a quite... I mean, I've got a mohawk. You'll be able to spot me I think me I've seen away. this, you know. You I'm sort out of, of jump in, in that. Right. I'm in the ring leaning over the yes, ropes. Yes, that's the one. I'm terribly yeah. out of shape in that. Uh, but for me, it never really bothered me too much. I was never trying to pretend to be something that I wasn't. I understand if you are... 
you know, if you're six weeks out from a fight and you don't want to show them your condition because you want them to feel like you've been prepared for ages and ages, when in actuality a lot of fighters are bringing their weight down in fights, mm. in, in training camp. Um, as far as the, the concern around, around body generally, I went through several different phases because when I was very young, when I first started Taekwondo, I was a very skinny, lean kid. Um, which meant Taekwondo suited me perfectly. But then as I started to get into double figures, hit 11, 12, I just naturally seemed to gain a load of weight. Now, my diet wasn't necessarily great all the way through as a kid anyway. I had young parents who were all trying to figure it out as we went yeah. along. So I ate a lot of, you know, turkey dinosaurs and that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Alpha bites. Exactly that, yeah. So it wasn't the best of diets. A lot of cookies. I was a big, big, big biscuit fiend when I was a kid as well. And there came there came a time in, in, my, in my early life where my body wasn't processing it the same as it was before. And I all of a sudden became aware that my body was looking a particular way and people were noticing. And that worked in, in two ways. One, because I was fighting in a weight class sport. So that was the first time I remember going to a tournament and my Taekwondo coach said to me, oh, you, you, you're almost on weight. Just do three laps of the sports while I go to the toilet. And I, that was the first time I understood that I could I could manipulate my body weight. Mm. It was the first time it had even occurred to me that I had any kind of control over that. Before, I was eating if I was hungry and my body just took shape as, as it did. And as a young kid, your body's growing and changing a lot anyway. So you, you, kind of, you kind of allow your body just to do what it does when you're a kid. You know, you've not really got any awareness of it. But when I was about 12, I was the kid in school that had a bit of puppy fat. I was a bit soft around my midsection. And I started to get comments about it, you know, a bit of bullying here and there. Isn't that mad, though? Yeah. You're 12. Yeah. Absolutely. So at the age of 12, so I'm maybe the guys that were bullying maybe a couple of years older than you, but from the age of 14, and I think the world is probably worse for it mm. now because of social media, but at the age of 12, at that point, you're now having issues about your body. Isn't that yeah. mad? It, it is crazy. And, and you're right with social media as well because... Now it's a case of, like I've heard I've heard things about kids they'll post a photo on Instagram if in the first 6 hours or so it doesn't get enough likes they'll delete it and they'll try again with a different picture. It's like that constant seeking of approval. Now mm. it wasn't something that we necessarily struggled with because I remember when the internet's came about and it was like have you got an email? What's an email? Yeah. You know. Whereas now people have a brand that they put forward that, that their public persona that they set out as this is who I am. When in actuality, that is who you want the world to see you as. Yeah. And a lot of that is down to how people look, how how you're, how you how comfortable you are with, with your physicality. And I think there's, it's much more accepted when you're talking about that kind of stuff with women because the society that we live in is geared towards, uh, you know, women presenting themselves as attractive as possible. I mean, you look at magazines, you look at advertising, you go into any kind of department store or whatever and you're looking at, you know, makeup and fake tan and, you know... Uh, wonder bras and all these kind of things that, that basically enhance the way you look physically so you can feel more comfortable like yourself in a public environment and it seems to be something that's starting to really take effect now more with men than anything and that probably due to the the fact that social media has been introduced um it wasn't a struggle that i had i, I was only dealing with the kids at school calling me names mm. but at the same time i knew that I was a bit soft and I didn't like the way I looked and felt. It wasn't comfortable for me. I couldn't keep up with my mates when we were playing football. Their 100 meter sprint was faster than mine. Yet I was in Taekwondo and I was, you know, I, I, could, I could compete, I could fight. Mm. And if I'm stepping in onto the mats against a guy that's the same weight as me but, you know, two inches taller and, you know, five pounds leaner, 
that's a, a massive jump up for a you know 10 12 14 year old kid to, mm. to overcome so there were two sides to it for me one was my, my my public brand at school how people saw me and accepted me and the other one was how I performed when I was actually competing and did I want to be fighting you know did as, as, a, as a chubby 14 year old did I want to be fighting guys that were 16 and lean and have been doing this for a couple of years longer at a higher level it, you know there were lots of different reasons for me to to become aware and start assessing my diet and, and I, I did start to change it I mean I was dieting from 12 you know changing my diet cooking my own meals from you know 12 13 with the support of my parents mm. and obviously with the fact that I was leaning on a weight class sport as my reason yeah but ultimately it was how I looked to my friends and my my you know the the, the kids around me at school yeah because they were the ones that were really you know making judgments on it it's crazy so I, I was a lot later I did the judo karate thing when I was younger and, and I remember weight classes as well but it didn't it just you you would fit into that weight class and I never manipulated that I think one of the times when it did hit home was when I was boxing and I gave away I think nearly a stone in weight but I mean it, I didn't even know about yeah. this but the nutrition side no one was telling me about nutrition either and I was I was a late teenager I think I was I was boxing when I was at uni, so yeah, I could have been like 19 or something. And I remember stepping into the ring and this geezer looked and he was a lot older than me and he had like muscles. And I was what I am now. I've always been like a streak of piss. <laughs> and uh, I beat him, but still, I think there's, there's just been this thing and I still suffer with it. I've proved to myself that I am... I can handle myself and, and we'll probably get onto this and as a fighter, the mindset that you have. I feel, you know, I'm being masculine. I've won. I've just defeated someone in boxing, beat them up, got a knockout. But yet, if you were to walk past him and I in the street, who's going to be, who's going to look more intimidating? Mm. And I've had, even with my, my coach, Dave Lee, when I've spoken to him before uh, about weight and like looking a certain way it's like who gives a fuck yeah, you know yeah. why why are you caring about that and i wish i was more like that but i you know i think maybe with an eye on a tv career and you know i've had relationships in the past with females that are models so it's very much part of their their thing and, and stuff like that and you know wanting to attract the opposite sex and all, all that kind yeah. of stuff but yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's always been a thing for me, and even being in combat sports. And when I was doing boxing, boxing is very well known. So if you participated and you had any kind of success, everyone knew about it. There would have been mixed martial artists and Thai boxers out there that would have handled me in thirty seconds. But boxing is just a bigger sport. So you walk around like you know, people, really big bollocks. Well, a little, bit, well, more just like people aren't going to challenge you so yeah. much but uh but i still like now as a vegan now this is the next step people say well yeah you look like a vegan oh, well, what does that mean yeah because i still feel like as a 40 year old man put me up against most normal 40 year old men in a take everything else away power of money well, okay right it's just you and i now yeah I train i've been training a long time but mm -hmm. still i i do have an issue you won't really see me posting photos topless yeah and I don't know, is that a society thing? Is Am I right to think, you know, I don't want to invite people to, you know, pick apart. Mm. But, yeah, I think now I feel like I have some sort of responsibility as 
as a plant-based weekend warrior to show that, look, we can, we can look just like anyone else. Mm. But I probably need to put on a couple of kilos of, uh, of, of lean muscle. Of lean muscle. But don't you think there's another side to that? So, obviously, you know, you you don't post photos of yourself without a shirt on, even if you were, you know, a couple of pounds heavier with with lean muscle, and you you did feel more confident. And I think maybe this is how the British culture differs to other places in the world. Is like, I know if I if I post a photo of me, you know, like selfie in the mirror with my shirt off, no matter how lean and muscular I was, in fact. The more lean and muscular I was, the more shit I get from my mates. <laughs> You're right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's like, yeah. well, well, it's all right, put it away. All right, we know. Yeah. So, like, you kind of can't win either way, especially yeah. if you're a guy. Like, with women, they can achieve absolutely nothing. And as long as they look nice, they can build a ridiculous social media following hmm. from nothing other than very, very posed, touched-up Photoshop selfies, hmm. you know? Whereas, like, when men do that, and, and I do the same, I, I, I pass judgment. If I see a guy that's, you know, always posting selfies of, him, of himself, like Emil Mech is a good example. Yeah. He's in wicked shape. Yeah. He's in, if you, if Sage he, Northcutt's another guy. Exactly. And another guy I follow is uh, uh, Roy Goldschmidt. He's one of uh, Edo Portel's guys. Right. And I was talking to, to Ollie and Dean about this the other day, my, my two good friends, and, and I said to them, if you were picking a human body to put your consciousness into, to live out your days as, as, as enjoyable and as functional as possible that's the body to step into yeah but there are two sides to that one because he can move like a ninja and that's yeah. amazing but two because he looks amazing mm. same with Emil Mech you know what I mean he looks amazing he's always posting photos of himself without his shirt on and he really embraces the fact that mm. he's in good shape but I know I, I see his photos through the eyes of all my mates and they're, they're like yeah alright mate put it away yeah you know because if, if, you're, if you're out of shape you put it away and if you're in shape you put it away because how yeah. dare you yeah you know what I mean yeah. it's like so, it's a British thing yeah. yeah so there's a bit of a hesitation for that as well like you, you can't be too proud of yourself yeah because <laughs> yeah. you know? then it's arrogance isn't it absolutely it's a real fine line between yeah. you know that self confidence to put yourself out there and that where you cross over that line it becomes arrogant and crass and people will disconnect from it are you worried about young men because it seems to me I was speaking to a doctor that I train with sorry go off on a, a little bit of a tangent and I believe that there is an increased number of people taking synthetics to try and build themselves up because well it j- just seems like everyone wants to look better And but there's a good byproduct to that there, there is a healthy aspect to getting in the gym and working out and taking you know building strength endurance and things like that but it's we don't really know what long the long-term effects are some of these potions and powders that people are using to do so on the balance it might still be healthier than maybe when i was younger and the example i use um tim crossface uh, is in watford town center where i train i park in the car park that i used to park in uh, when i used to go out on the lash you wouldn't be able to walk from the car park in through the town centre easily on a Thursday, Friday or Saturday night. It was jam-packed with people. Those people aren't there anymore. Mm. I trained Thursday and Friday and then on you know Saturday mornings. And it's, it's so different from when I was younger. We used to socialise in bars and clubs. Now it seems like younger people seem to be in the gyms. You know, The gym is heaving. Mm. So I guess there is a, a, a healthy byproduct of that. But... I do worry about the motivations for why people are doing it and and therefore the damage that it's going to do. Well, yeah, I agree with, with, the, with the intention behind it because 
and I think the easiest one, the easiest way to relate this to is 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 the female population because it's so much more defined with with the female population. So you go, there's a lot of trickery that goes on. There's a lot we've understood what we require as humans, what we look for, what we desire, and then there's a lot of smoke and mirrors to kind of catch your attention. So a girl that puts fake tan on, that dyes her hair blonde, that has breast implants or ass implants or whatever. They're all levels of trickery. Like the blonde hair and the tanned skin, whether they're real or not, is to give us the impression that they're healthy. They spend a lot mm. of time outdoors in the sun. So they're, they're basically, they're, they're kind of bolting on things that are not true to themselves. They're not spending a lot of time outside. If they, were, if they did, they would look very different. But these things that catch us, that draw us in, uh, work the same thing for men. When I used to work in a gym, we always used to talk about mirror muscles. The amount of guys that come in and they only work the muscles they can see. Like they're right. standing for, okay, I'll work chest, I'll work shoulders, I'll work biceps. Legs, back, and cover them up. You know what mm. I mean? It's like a, it, again, it's branding, but it's, it's, it's selective branding. And you can do this, like the fake tan thing is an obvious one. Breast implants are obvious ones because they are things that, that catch our eye as men. Um, they are traps that we fall into because we have a, a, um, we have a, a base, a full reptile programming that drives us to those things because we're looking for an ideal mate. So we want someone with um, not necessarily a narrow waist but wide hips yeah, for childbearing. Yeah. Exactly the same thing with breast implants is trickery because obviously a woman who's voluptuous is probably better at, at bearing a child. Um, the blonde hair and the fake tan again, it's trickery, and now it's working the same thing on the on the on the men's side as well. I mean, as far as you know, people like taking out loans to have cars and that kind of thing that they can't afford. It's that that branding that you're trying to give yourself. And mm. when it goes into a physical thing, that's when it becomes dangerous because that's when people start to use chemicals and substances and supplements that then enhance these things that are not health-based. It's trickery-based. Like, there's nothing healthy about getting breast implants. It might get you the result that you want, but it won't. It's not going to do anything for your health. Same thing with tanning beds and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Possibly quite detrimental to your health, but gives the impression that you're actually more healthy than you are. Mm. So if a guy's going in and working out, if he's using a bit of something to strip body fat or gain muscle, yeah, I mean, he, he's given us the impression that he's healthy, that he's in shape, and that he's strong. But actuality inside, he's probably he's probably doing a lot worse than he looks on the surface, mm. and that's where it becomes a problem because. We then we don't as- associate the health benefits of a physical appearance to the physical appearance itself, mm. and the health benefits is really what we're looking for within the physical appearance. You know, when you see somebody with a tan, it's because they spend a lot of time outside. Like you know, when you come back from holiday, people are, oh, you look great, you look healthy, yeah. you got a tan. It, you know what I mean? It's it, it's it's smoke and mirrors. It's not real if there's not the actual health benefit behind it. Mm. And it's funny how size, like physical size, now is is an association with uh, with masculinity. And I was listening to uh, some videos and, and podcasts around this, and apparently a lot of this stuff came out of the eighties and people like Schwarzenegger. You know, up before that, the the masculine man was the Marlboro advert, and and it's just switched up. Mm. You know, but if you were to probably listen to Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's such a profound guy. He'd be telling you all the pitfalls of of being narcissistic and and these kind of things. So appearances are, yeah, it's, it's very challenging, isn't it? Um, and I do worry. I do the, the social media stuff. You have to try and make it work for you rather than against you. But we all fall into it. Mm. We fall into these traps. And and you're right. It's. Kendrick Lamar in one of his lyrics says something about like show me an ass with stretch marks because I think he's almost sick of it 
you know and it's true you just don't, you don't see it yeah. so it's not real but people are buying these tickets aren't they yeah. it's uh yeah it is a bit of a worry um masculinity on, on another level then and being a fighter and i think would naturally people would say that's super masculine mm-hmm. How do you? But that, but then, does that not allow you to to be in touch with your feminine side at all? Which is important, really, to go through life in a more balanced, as a more balanced person. Are you allowed to be vulnerable and speak about your feelings and you know open up on many different levels when you are a fighter? Do you feel like you can? I think you probably. You're probably one of the only guys that I think probably does, but and if that's if I am true in in my assessment, you know, why are you different? Um, I think there was I think there came a point when I realised that it didn't matter how hard I tried, I wasn't gonna please everybody, I wasn't gonna be liked by everybody. There were always gonna be people that didn't like me for whatever reasons they were, and a lot of the time, the judgments that were coming towards me weren't based on me. They were based on how that person was feeling when they made that comment. So, like, if I'm, like, say, for example, I post a photo on Instagram and someone comes on and makes a, you know, an inappropriate comment, a rude comment, an, an unkind comment of any way. That's not really because they're feeling that about me. That's because they're feeling unhappy with their own personal state. And I think a lot of there's a lot of that manifesting that's in in one's per, in one's person that's then aimed externally. So if somebody's not feeling confident about themselves, they will then turn that on everybody else and it will come out like in this this horrible stream of venom, which we see across the internet. I mean, the internet's the worst thing for it because it gives that manifestation a home. It allows people to have a front that they can then act out all these, all these you know, aggressions towards everybody else because of how insecure they feel. So th- there, there are two sides to it. I mean, for me, when I realised that, when I realised, when, when somebody started being insulting towards me, Instead of me being angry and wanting to go back and compete with them on it, I actually took a, set, a, a different stance and I actually felt quite sorry for them, like genuinely quite sorry for them because I wouldn't say those things about somebody else, mm. but that's because I'm happy with who I am. Mm. You know, I mean, obviously there are lots of things I want to work on, lots of things I want to change, but I'm, I am, I'm engaged in the process and the journey of achieving the things that I want to do. The people that are making those comments on me are so far locked into their position, they don't see a way out of it. They don't see a way of switching their diet up and joining the gym and, you know, changing their physical appearance in whatever way they need to to make them feel comfortable or just come into terms with their physical appearance. You went you went to Arnold Schwarzenegger a minute ago and I think that's interesting because I think the idea of bodybuilding and these fitness magazines and, and, and fashion magazines as well, particularly for the female population, is that it's given us an idea of what the ideal human should look like. Mm. Like... The ideal human, the ideal man should have a six-pack, apparently. Like, you see any photo of any man that's modelling anything, and he's got... Even if he's not a madly defined six-pack, like you see yeah, on the... Yeah, it's on the there. Front, yeah, it's there. There's that, that leanness to it. Now, even when I was fighting at 73 kilos, I've never had a six-pack. I've never been particularly lean. It's just not my body type. Mm. I could do it. I could absolutely kill myself and force myself down to that weight if necessary. But it's not necessary. Do you know what I mean? Because this is the body that I'm in. And I can influence it. I can change some things about it. But ultimately, what I'm interested in is the health of it and the functionality of it. And if I have health and functionality, then the shape that it takes will be the shape that I'm happy with. And it's funny you should say that because even this, 
exactly that point when I was doing all the triathlon stuff the other year I did lean out you know you're burning so many calories I was never big before so it just gotten down yeah. but for what I was trying to achieve it, it didn't pay me to be you know five or six kilos heavier on a bike mm. or trying to run you know a marathon but people would just be like, oh you look terrible and and I'm looking around going but I'm super fucking healthy yeah why do I look terrible what is your perception of what should look good? Now, I actually, in my mind, I was like, well, people are just so used to seeing clinically obese people. And I'm so far away from that now mm. that now you're, you're pushing that. You, you're overweight and you're pushing that on me in that sense. But I still felt, and even now, when I go back to doing triathlon, I will probably gain a bit more size. I think it would help with just injuries and, and things like that. But I, did, I wasn't happy with the way that I looked because of probably my perception of how people should look. And I'm hanging around with you guys all day. I'm still, I'm training with a bunch of athletes. And, um, and it's, there is that, you're just seeing it. You're taking it in. It goes in by osmosis. Mm. One thing I want to say, though, is women's perception of how big a man should be is very different to our perception. Yeah. Apparently, some studies have been done, and we think that we need to be, like, huge and women are like, no, we don't, don't want to go anywhere near that end. <laughs> yeah. But who are we doing that for? When, yeah. when we're getting it, who are we doing it? It's for them. So it's it's almost like we all need to come into a room together and go, yeah, we're nowhere near there. <laughs> so don't kill yourself trying to do that. Yeah. Um, but that functionality thing was, was interesting. Here's a question for you then. The Fs. Footballers, firefighters and fighters are the three categories of my friends that have never struggled to get women. Yeah. Always female attention for those guys. When you were younger, did you did you pick being a fighter with any kind of masculinity, machoism associated with it, where it might just make you be more manly, which would get you certain things, maybe female attention or something like that? Um... <clears throat> Uh, no, no, and I, only because of the order that you that you explained it. And then for me, because the age I started take on to that, I was so young. The reason I started at six is because I was being bullied because I was the quiet kid in class. So for me, it was a confidence thing. Does that sort of sorry to interrupt, mate? But in going on in life, I think a man's role is like as a protector. Yeah. Do you think we have those those things in our brain from so very early on? Maybe we see it with like our dads protecting and we feel like we need to get ourselves in a position to be able to protect yeah possibly possibly i mean like for me early on i mean and there was a point when i was in my teens and i realized there was a currency to being tough there was a currency to 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 being able to walk into a room and and it's not necessarily being able to handle yourself it's just the confidence to walk into a room and feel like you can handle whatever's Mm. in that situation you know like when I was very very young, I didn't have that confidence. And through my years of Taekwondo, I slowly started to realize that you know, I could handle myself. Then I went through a phase where I was overweight and I, was, I wasn't physically at my best. I didn't feel very confident, even though I could actually, you know, I, could, I was fairly handy at that point. I mean, mm. I was competing on a British level in Taekwondo. Um, but then there was a confidence then that came from going on a diet and getting my weight down and actually getting the physical appearance that I felt more comfortable in, not only for my peers who I wanted to, you know, to have their approval, of course, as everybody mm. does in their teens, but at the same time when I'm stepping onto a onto a mat to compete in Taekwondo, 
I want people to look at me like this guy's taken this seriously and he's in shape. And there was a, like a secondary wave of confidence that came from that. And then when I was sort of 16 or 17, I started to go out and hang out with friends. I realized there was a currency to being tough. And I realized that that currency goes a long way because then you get the, the respect of the guys around you. And as, as a result of that, you get the attention of women as well. Um, and see women again we're, like we're tuned in to look for blonde hair and, and tanned skin and breast implants and narrow waists and stuff women are tuned in to, 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 to see how the males are sorting themselves out in a hierarchy again it's completely subconscious most women that you talk to won't realise that when they're walking through a bar looking at guys they're looking at things like watches and you know what I mean shoes those kind of things not necessarily because they're interested in their guys being dressed well and you know having nice jewellery but because they are they are um What's the word? They're, they're, um, they're signifiers in success. So again, this is like we were talking about people working just the mirror muscles. Like there are guys that go out on a limb and spend a load of money on something they can't afford to have a nice watch on their wrist because they're faking it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm. a, it's like a false attraction. So I realized I didn't have that false attraction. I realized that I was getting the respect from my peers because they perceived me as a tough guy. I felt like I'd fairly proved myself in the martial arts world, so I had that confidence. And then, as a result of that, I didn't have a problem getting female attention. Now, whether that was because I was being treated like that by my male peers, or whether it was just purely because that was the confidence I was putting out that was attractive to women. Um, there are so many different levels to it, but the, the, the confidence is the, is the underpinning factor. Because you'll see guys that aren't in great shape, that don't have any particular skills, that are incredibly confident yeah. and can just, they're like sharks in a nightclub, you know what I mean? You can, yeah. you can watch them just scheming and you're like, how are you getting away with that? Mm. It's just that confidence. And for me, that was never natural for me. I had to source that confidence through hard work and through proving to myself that I was, um, I was able to do the things that I said I could do. And there's a bit of a flip side to things now that I've noticed and that's geeks are winning. Mm. So when we were younger you would never aspire to be a geek. Well, if you were super comfortable in your own skin, maybe. Yeah. But generally speaking, those were the guys that, that got picked on. And I think when I was growing up, I, I, I did very well to sort of keep a foot in a few different camps, you know? I've got to be careful what... No, what do I mean by that? Um, <laughs> no, but the guys that were, were quite studious, um, yeah. that you could have intelligent conversations with, but at the same time, the guys on the rugby team... Um, and those that were probably a little bit more extrovert and you could have fun with. Mm. I did quite well to be in both areas yeah. And, and, yeah, kind of look after the guys that perhaps couldn't look after themselves so well. But now they're being celebrated. Mm. So, again, is there a, is, is there a, a shift in masculinity from, from physical appearance as well? Or are we just, is it like two extremes? Because geeks now become wealthy and have adoring fans largely a lot of male fans um because it could be a gaming thing or, mm -hmm. or something like that there are certain wins in business that's something that's new as well yeah um so it's it almost goes contradictory about the whole body image thing because those guys aren't about that yeah well there are two there are two ways to view that one is that guys are generally gravitating towards that kind of look and that kind of the, the geekiness the nerdy vibe because they realise that that's, that's the current demographic that women are looking for. Um, but because we're being told that by advertising, by TV shows and stuff. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of TV shows now that empower the nerd. 
Do you know what I mean? Right. The, like the geek in the show is the one that's empowered. Like our day, it was Screech on Saved by the Bell. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Now you look at—I don't remember the, the TV show name—but the, they live opposite each other, and they're like male, like male nerds and female attractive characters. And they, oh, I think I remember the, something. The show? Yeah, it's yeah, an American yeah. show. It's yeah. got a hideous laugh track, and they're all yeah. very awkward. Yeah. But that awkwardness is is appealing now because it almost disarms the women. Like the women then feel confident because they don't want to walk into a bar with a bunch of meatheads that are juiced up their eyeballs because that's not attractive because you're not getting a genuine human being there. You're getting, a, you're getting the bravado, you're getting the brand that they're packaging for you. Now, there are guys I know, particularly around my area in the Midlands, that are so far into that brand that they built in their early teens that they don't know themselves. Mm. They will never step outside of that. You know, guys that I've trained with over the years, they're like... Well, this is who I am. I'm a tough guy. I've got, you know, I've got the tattoos, and you know, I hang out with these boys, and we talk about street fighting and, and you know, pubs and bars and pussy and all this kind of stuff. That's bravado. You know what I mean? Mm. That's not real. People don't talk like that to each other. In, in like me and my mates, when we sit down having a good conversation, me and you, it's a logical conversation between two human beings. Mm. If you listen to two pubmen in in the, in the street uh, having a conversation, they're not talking to each other. They're talking at each other. They're trying to inflict their brand upon each other with the hopes that that's going to perpetuate the people around and, and people are going to buy into that brand. And I think that it's come to, it's come to a point where, and, I, and this is a shift on the male side as well, it's come to a point where men aren't really interested in breast implants and Botox and fake this and fake that. We want someone that's genuine. We want someone that we can sit and have a conversation with that we can appreciate for who they are and for the health of that person. The same thing goes with men, and I think that obviously the, the the geek nerd kind of archetype is the extreme, because it's it's the opposite to the juice head. Like if a woman walks into a bar and she's got juice heads on one side and geeks on the other, the deciding factor maybe that she feels just less threatened with the geeks. Yeah. So she she's going to shy away from the from the bravado and the confidence. Now obviously if you can get somewhere in the middle. The somewhere in the middle is the person that probably genuinely knows who they are. Because they're like, I accept the fact that I love Star Wars and Lego, but at the same time, I, I you know I have a history of professional fighting, so that kind of keeps me right in the middle. Mm. So I accept the nerd in me, and you kind of can't talk shit about the nerd in me because I used to fight for the UFC. You know what I mean? Mm. So I have a kind of a weird balance, and that's where my confidence comes from, which kind of removes me from from this kind of debate in a lot of ways. But I can step back and look at it, and I can see my mates on both sides, and I can see the game that's being played. Mm. And it's a game on both sides. The geeks are too nervous to embrace their masculinity and push into that demographic. And the juice heads and the, the, the bravado guys are too scared to, to release that and move over towards the stuff. They may love Star Wars and Lego, mm. but they're not to tell their mates that because I like football and beer. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And mm. it's like, it's, it, again, it's what's expected of each other. And we all enable each other or disempower each other is probably a better way of putting it. Mm. It's all about it. Excuse me. It's all about who you surround yourself with. And yeah. I've just been fortunate to have... I've had a few meetheads around me over the days, but I've had a lot of good people that I've had good conversations with. So, mm. you know, it, I think it works both ways. I think there are so many factors that play in and, and so many assumed perceptions from men to women and vice versa that affect us in, in positive and negative ways. You're talking... You were saying having conversations with people and, and that's something that, you know, we should talk about when we are exploring masculinity because... People say they don't talk, you know, and men don't talk. And I'm going to be careful with with how I frame this up. But over the last couple of months, um, we've seen 
we've seen people that we've know or know of they've they've you know it's just awful they've taken their own lives and I can't imagine what kind of state you need to get into where where that where that happens and and really like talking and communication must be so important in that when people are in those kind of in that situation now your your mum and sister are sort of experts in this area I think aren't they I can't remember you'll have to remind us what they do but equally I think and and this is no slight I'm I'm making comparisons here like my dad and your dad seem like quite similar types you know funny guys probably make a joke out of everything rather than actually stepping back and deconstructing how they're feeling Mm -hmm. my dad talks about stuff but not how he feels about that stuff Mm -hmm. so it's just a bit of moaning and then he doesn't kind of work through it Um, so there are different levels to it but how important do you think it is to as a man be less perceived masculine that that whole masculinity thing and start fucking talking mm. you know? it's it's incredibly important and and there are certain things there are certain reasons that men don't do that you mentioned it earlier about feeling the need to to take on that protector role and that's something that I've always felt i remember when i was a kid watching my dad tear around the football pitch just like taking people's ankles out he was the tough guy on the football pitch he was a monster and I remember watching that and seeing the respect that he got from his mates and I'm like Mm. well he's the protector on the team you know what I mean it's the same when we go to watch ice hockey we all love the enforcer because he's there to protect everybody else like Mm. we do our job because he's there doing his so like the, the, the protector is the umbrella over it so like for me I feel that towards my family obviously towards my friends and my family if you're a coach of some sort then you take on that role for a much broader pool of people and you have to maintain a strong front, which means that you don't have people to open up to, to, to talk to, to communicate with. And I think that's where it, that's where it gets very difficult. And then f- on a very, very baser level, as, as animals, as human, being, as human animals, we're not meant to sit in a room with other alpha males and say, I'm, I feel vulnerable, I feel weak, I'm struggling with this. Because the reptilian brain is telling us that that's competition. Do you know what I mean? Like, we're supposed to be competing with every other alpha male out there. Mm. And you're not going to get an alpha male sit down with, with you know, a, a guy that's on a different rung of the ladder and have a similar conversation. You need guys that you can feel confident and comfortable with. Now, I'm, I'm very thankful I've got a group of friends around me that I feel like if I needed to, I can pick the phone up and call them and talk to them. Mm. But I remember watching my coaches go through times where they would really struggle and it would just, just put on a brave front. My granddad was very much like that. He was old school, my granddad. You know, it's brave front. I work eight days a week, 25 days a year. You know what mm. I mean? 25 weeks a year. It's, mm. it's just that kind of, I'm tough. I can take it. I'll carry it. I'll keep going. I'm fine. I'm fine. That's the thing. I find myself I'll deal saying with that. It. I'll deal with it. Yeah. That's something I say a lot. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. And that is the worst answer you can give because it's it's such a it's such a drop the mic kind of moment I don't want to mm. say anything else on it I'm fine leave me alone is what that is when in actuality if you, if you can start even if you're not opening up to someone externally to start with even if you're asking those questions to yourself mm. like open up open my eyes in the morning do I, do I feel alright today I don't feel alright today why don't I feel alright today and I feel I feel fortunate that my mind works quite analytically and I can start deconstructing and pulling things apart and I can go well I don't feel fine today because I used to be a fighter and people used to know me as that and they don't know me as that anymore. Do you know what I mean? 
So a part of my brand is affected. And how does that brand affect my ego? How does my ego affect my mood when I wake up in the morning? And I think every single person... I'm going to... So yeah. has that affected your masculinity? I've not thought about that until you just said it. That's a very good point. You've gone um, from being the guy with the mohawk screaming at the camera yeah. with the crazy gum shield... Yeah. And now you're the guy educating and, you know, helping people with an experience. Yeah. It took me some time. It, it took me a lot of time. Do you uh, feel like, did you feel like you'd lost a bit of manliness? I'd lost, I've, and I, I feel like I kept a pretty good lid on it, which is probably not the best thing to have done in, in you know, talking about the conversation that we're having now. Um, but yeah, I mean, those first three years after I was pulled out of the Matt Brown fight, I would say more than 50% of the time I'd wake up and not want to get out of bed because I just, I didn't know what my purpose was mm. from when I was a kid. I was a fighter from all the way through my teens. Everything that I did revolved around me being better at my sport, being better at fighting. And it, it was a part of it was, that was part of my brand. That was, that was who people saw me as. But the other part is that's who I saw myself as. Now I had a conversation with an Olympian and she was a, um, a long jumper. So very, very different, uh, line of work, very different sport. But when she retired, she had the same situation. It was like I kind of had to get to know myself because when you remove that big chunk of who I am and mm. um, what I hang all of my expectations of myself on, what am I left with? And mm. I didn't really know what to do. I struggled to go into the gym because I was seeing other guys that were doing the sport that I wanted to do and I couldn't. So I was angry at them. I was frustrated at them, especially because I didn't feel like they were training as hard as me or whatever. But like the under the undercurrent all the time was I just I didn't know which direction I was working in. I didn't know who I was. I, I, I didn't have I didn't have those those boosts in confidence where that you get from knocking a guy out. I mean the the rush that you feel from winning by knockout for mm. me is is unparalleled. In anything else I've ever experienced in my life. I remember sitting in my car after a Cage Warriors and driving home and that drive home was the best I've ever felt because I'd achieved what I set out to do and everybody witnessed me do it. Mm. And I don't, I, it took a long, long time for me to find an outlet to that which was even slightly satiated. I mean, I, I love doing this, the Inside the Octagon shows that we do and I like people to be engaged in the video and watch it and go, this guy's knowledge is incredible. But... Ultimately, I'd rather be on the other side. People going, "Oh my God, look at that left." I think that you see value in doing this because one day when you come back, all of this work that you're putting in, <laughs> you're going to translate that. Yeah, yeah, and that and that's a, that's, that's a, a part of it. It's absolutely. probably a justification for you know the amount of effort that you put into it. Yeah, absolutely. A, a, a lot of it is down to the fact that I kind of don't know what to do with that energy as well, and so I I do I do push myself and drive myself more now than I did when I was fighting. Um, and not in a positive way. Like when you're fighting, you're pushing yourself, but at the same time, your your focus is your skill set and your health. Now my focus is my output. Mm. My skill set is important, and my output is important. Uh, sorry, my, my skill set's important, my health's important, but my output is the driving factor because that's where my confidence comes from. Right. I look at myself and I go, I've achieved a lot today. I've done a lot today. I've proved myself in my uh, in my arena today. It's so so much easier to do that when we were fighting. I, I think we were talking about it on the show about how the octagon became my comfort zone because mm. it, it did. That was my safe space because that was the place where I could absolutely embrace the person that I was. Mm. And when I was removed from that environment, there was no other no other place for it, and I I just felt lost for a long time. And and it took it took years and years. And what another thing that made it challenging was that when I'm when I met my wife, it was right right before my last fight. 
So she didn't really know me as a fighter and she didn't really know me through training camp. So she didn't have a comparison to who I was and who I am. Right. So she didn't really, she didn't understand that I was struggling. She didn't see the struggle mm. because to her that's who I was because that's how she'd known me. Whereas in actuality, when, when I can go back into, like say 2012, I was on top of the world. I felt like an entirely different person. Mm. And I felt like ever since that point, I've been trying to get back to that and it's been it's been a challenge and I felt like when I was removed from fighting that I I was just set adrift I was just drifting and I didn't know where I could find my happiness so you've expressed vulnerability there mm. and how did you how did you cope with that did you speak to anyone uh, no not for a long time because I didn't I didn't really understand it because your mum's very is she, she works in like the psychology yeah my, my mum and my sister are, are, are excellent when it comes to the the mind um, uh, they both work in childcare um, yeah. my, my mum runs a runs a preschool for kids and she's incredible at working with kids with disabilities and that kind of stuff so she's very perceptive she's very empathic she can she can she, I have a tired spot on my face this is going to sound stupid I have a tired spot on my face that nobody else can see other than my mum right it's under one of my eyes and she looks at me she's you're tired what's the matter hmm you know, it's a different kind of fatigue. It's a worn down fatigue. It's an emotional fatigue. Mm. She can see it on my face. So I do have people that can kind of pry it out of me. Yeah. My sister's an excellent conversationist. And, and when we can sit and have a, have, a, have a chat about anything, I feel confident that I can open up and I can get a, a very so balanced important. opinion. So yeah. important you got those yeah. people, isn't it? But at the same time, you know, I, I have male friends around me. And I think, I think that... I think that basically my family identified that there was going to be a struggle when, when my fighting career either came to an end or, put, or was put on hold because that was everything that I was mm-hmm. and always had been, especially through my most formative years as a, as a teenager. Everything that I was had been built around that, that brand that I created for myself. So with my family being so perceptive, they were able to kind of dig it out of me a little bit and force me to talk about it. Um, but I'm fortunate because I do have friends around me that I can I can talk to. Um, my manager Wad, who, you know, he gave me a, he gave you a good rundown of me and who I was and how I functioned before we started working yeah, together. And yeah. I actually thanked him again for that last night when we met because that helped me understand who I was and that that wasn't a weakness in me. You know that I I do need to remove myself and have quiet time and, and be on my own, be away from people. And I felt like that was a weakness as well. And I felt like that was exasperated when I stopped fighting because I felt more sensitive to people. I wanted to be on my own more. Hmm. Um, and and I, I, can, I can imagine that other people in my situation, um, whether it's you know a failed drug test or a, a string of losses or whatever it is that forces people into this situation where they've got to start looking outside themselves for that acceptance, um, a lot of people just don't have anyone to talk to. Mm. You know, I, I try and make myself available for people around me, and I'm thankful that I, that I have people around me that that also make themselves available for me. But I know there are so many people out there that don't, and the people that you, that we're talking about, I would imagine that because they were in you know authoritative roles coaching, there's not a moment where they can take off that head coach. You know, I'm the protector, I'm the leader of this group, and be vulnerable with anybody. Women will call one another and they go for a coffee and they'll have chats. Whenever men have done anything like that, and I'm thinking of, I'm probably counting on one hand when the calls come my way, I've probably called up more people than have called me. Let's go for a drink. Mm. Because then there's alcohol involved and you've almost, you can almost hide behind the alcohol. But when you, when you get intoxicated, you can say some stuff or you, you need that yep. to open up a little bit. 
Um, Anna, I mean, uh, yeah, just just a small thing on, you know, people in uh, an athletics environment, coaches, etc., where alcohol really isn't something that you can hide behind. So again, mm-hmm. removes another opportunity for them to but perhaps. Then, but then, perhaps. how many how many athletes do you see that retire and turn to alcohol? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's a, it's, there's a very numbing element to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I again, possibly this is why I've managed to work my way through this this and, and get to a better place was I've not drank since I was 17. Mm. It, it didn't suit me. It didn't suit the person that I was. It, I made bad decisions. I was, you know, I just wasn't a good version of myself and I was Most fortunate. people aren't. No, that's true. I mean, it, you know, there are positives with the social aspect, as you yeah. say. It does alleviate some of the pressures that people find and uh, that people feel and it does make so because I stopped drinking at 17 I, I kind of feel like I didn't have that escape I didn't have that outlet where I could kind of run away from where I was and what I was dealing with and in those years I lean I, I you know I was I was so heavily into mixed martial arts that everything else kind of fell by the wayside anyway you know I, I did two years of university quit that wanted to focus on that I was in a band we were, we were touring doing gigs I quit that because I just didn't have time my entire focus went into mixed martial arts and with the removal of alcohol I, I didn't have after a loss I didn't have that well I just go out and get smashed do you know what I mean I didn't mm. have that to, that to run away and hide I had to face it in that moment when I was feeling at my worst so and I, and I think and the one the one the one thing that happened in my career that I think really changed people's opinions of me was my post fight interview after the Condit fight and I was always aware that there was going to become a time when I was going to get knocked out because that's the sport that, I, that I'm in that's the game that I play you know, I'm chasing for the knockout. In order to knock somebody out, you have to leave yourself vulnerable sometimes, and that was a stupid mistake that I made. But from that point, I, the, the person I've said this many times: the person that got up off the canvas that night was an entirely different person. And when Joe Rogan came up to me and he went, "What went wrong? What did go wrong? I got punched in the face. That was the bottom line of it. Yeah. I just, I think it. What that did for me was immediately disarmed everybody that was going to have a negative comment about me. Because as soon as they heard me say, well, I got punched in the face, it's matter of fact. I got knocked out. I lost the fight. Mm. Yeah, what, how many million people watching? I got knocked out live on TV. It is what it is. After that point, everything else was easy for me. You know, Like when we step into the commentary booth and I have a mic in front of my face or I'm doing a post-fight interview and I call him the wrong name, which I did with Gunnar Nelson, called him Rick. <laughs> Like it's stupid, yeah, of course, but yeah. we're humans. We're not yeah. perfect every time, you know. And people have seen me at my most vulnerable, unconscious on the canvas. You know, the worst thing, worst part about that for me is that my parents were sat cage side. So the idea of me coming back then is there's a, then that's when I have a battle of am I wanting to come back to satiate my ego, to fulfil that dream of being the tough guy in the cage again, or is it because I don't even want to test myself and I'm still debating that mm. I'm still going to end up fighting no doubt but the process leading up to the fight will help me come to this conclusion mm. but one other thing that I've helped one of the things that's helped obviously alcohol t- uh, being away from my, my life has helped but also psychedelics and I know that people that follow me know I'm very much into the psychedelic world you have to have a vulnerability in that world you have to open yourself up to, to face yourself because what the psychedelic space does for me is it, it peels away all those bravado layers. It peels away the tough guy layer. It peels away the, the football hooligan, the, the you know, all those layers that people put on themselves before they step out and go go out with the mates on the town. You 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 rem- that all the, all those things are removed. Is it so does it get you to what's probably like a, an optimal state? That balance between 
masculine and feminine. Is that am I right? In I think so. Yeah. I, when with masculine and feminine, there there are so many different connotations attached to both the words. For, you say you say well, masculine. If someone's hyper masculine, there are certain characteristics that are attached to that. If someone's hyper feminine, there are certain characteristics attached to that. But ultimately. A person that's in touch with both sides is a balanced individual. Mm. So they are their true self. Like we should all be 50-50, really. There's no reason for us to be hyper-masculine or hyper-feminine in any way. If we are, they are just expressions of that part of our character that we're embracing and building a brand around. Mm. Every individual really has the capacity to be 50-50 completely balanced. And the reason that we're not is based on early childhood life experiences people that we surround ourselves with the industry that we work in there are so many factors that influence the way that we invest ourselves mm. and our, 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 we invest in our character and I think for me because I had the hyper masculine uh, with with the, the sport that I was in I was also an art student so you have to kind of be in contact with your with your inner workings your subconscious and understand particularly for the artwork that I used to do I did a performance about balance and it was like a one day performance that I did. I studied contemporary art at university. So it was all a bit wild and we could kind of do whatever you wanted. I've gone on a bit of a tangent. No, but no, this, this was where I was when I was 20 years old. I was, I was, you know, at university on, on this new course, really trying to figure out what I was supposed to be doing because I wanted to be a fighter. I didn't have the means and whereabouts to do that. I was doing university because that's what everybody expected of me. And what I was very fortunate to find myself on a course where I had good debate with really intelligent people. So it was an art course, but we were talking about Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud and uh, Jacques Lacan and how, you know, the archetypes of man have been broken down and pulled apart. And this performance that I did, I was in a big white studio space with a wooden floor and I did it with no shirt on because that kind of seemed relevant at the time for some reason. And I had six glasses on one side and six glasses on the other and I had a piece of tape that went all the way down the floor all the way across the ceiling and all the way up my body and over the top and back down again so everything was divided into two mm -hmm. then what I'd done is I'd recorded two audio tracks I'd recorded one which was positive my voice positive and negative in the beginning of the performance the negative side was very loud that was dominant the dominant thing you're doing this you're not doing that this needs to be better this should be better you failed at that you've let people down with that and that was the side where all the glasses were empty on the other side of the line was the positive voice but that started off very quiet you're doing well you're achieving people like you you you're a kind person you all these mm. positive affirmations yeah. that was the side that had the glasses that were full and the performance was I me mean, walking to one side taking one of the full glasses walking over to the other side and pouring half the glass of water into the empty side to balance it then walking back and I managed to time it so as I was doing the performance the negative started to die down and the positive started to come up and at no point in the performance did the positive drown out the negative they came to a point where they were 50-50 balanced and that was the point where I tore the tape off everything tore the tape off myself and that was where I found balance and my, my point was not that I wanted to go from being really, really negative to being really, really positive. Yeah. It's that I wanted to find that balance so I can draw upon both sides. You have to be critical of yourself sometimes, otherwise you won't get out of bed in the morning and go to the gym. Mm. But sometimes you have to be nice to yourself and realize that you worked hard yesterday and you need a rest. Mm. And I was never very good at that balance. All the way through training camp, I was never very good at that. And I'm a bit better now, but I'm still not quite there. And I feel like it's going to be a life journey trying to find that balance. But people feel like they have to be either one way or the other. 
or they can't help being pulled in one direction or the other. They're usually negative mm. because of their outside stimulus. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fascinating um that's a fascinating project. Yeah. And something that you'd worked out when you were young. You know, I'm only coming into all of this, uh, you know, just at 27. Um, yeah, a, a lot older and I guess that I'm trying to prime myself up for being the best human that I can be and, and things of that nature. So I'm addressing lots of different stuff. I'm caught up in the whirlwind of, you know, just trying to make my way uh, with the tools that I had available. And um, I think you only get so far with, with a certain mindset ambitious grinding masculine mindset you you only get so far because you get into those relationships with women and they see through some of that stuff and you have to break that stuff down which is kind of painful sometimes but um but it's definitely worthwhile you know just being more harmony mm. i guess um you've been very open and honest mate and i appreciate that and what what kind of things out the lessons that you might have learned something that you might have seen maybe it's still something you're striving for what would you say to people who were perhaps younger uh, struggling a little bit and or they don't maybe they don't even know that they're struggling a little bit is there something that you you think is important to to identify and some advice um i think i think the most important thing and this goes across the board with everybody, is to realise that the state that you're in in that particular moment, whether it's good or bad, is not permanent. It's not everlasting. Nothing's permanent in this life. You know, there are certain things that I absolutely love in my life, like objects, my pirate, my Lego pirate ship, the first one I got. I have a particular quartz crystal that I absolutely love. But they're, they're not, they won't last forever. And as soon as I can release that expectation that whatever I'm clinging to is going to last forever... Again, whether it's positive or negative, I love my little dog. And the idea of losing that little dog kills me. But that disarms me if I realise that nothing lasts forever. Because mm. I have to release that. I have to enjoy the time that I have in that experience, with that experience. Mm. If I don't, I cling to the negative side of it and it hangs on me. It wears me down. Mm. And it's the same where if I wake up in the morning and I'm just having a, I just don't feel right. Whatever it is, whether it's, you know... I don't feel like I'm achieving. I don't feel like I'm 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 fulfilling my potential. I, I, whatever it is, I don't like the way I look physically. It can be anything. The the state that I'm in in that moment is is a, a motivating factor to drive me onto the next stage. It keeps the journey going. That's all it is. And the only reason that it, it's a, it has a negative effect on people is when they go, "This is the end of the journey. I've arrived, and I'm not happy with this." And they're the people that you see leaving these awful comments on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook and uh, YouTube and stuff. You know, they're the, they're the people that feel like they're stuck. And nobody's stuck because nothing's stuck. Because if you look at the speed in which the planet, the planet's spinning, if you look at the size of the universe, if you look at all the stuff... Like, there was a quote that I read on, on, the, on the, the floor of, I believe it was a train station or an art studio or something. And it was about the iron that's in your blood was once stardust. You know what I mean? And at mm. some point, every single particle of your body will be elsewhere. Mm. So nothing's permanent. Mm. So the mood that you are currently experiencing is not going to last forever. And you can always work your way out of it, no matter mm. what it is. Mm. That, for me is. That, for me, is the most important thing. Because that, especially when you have that, that heaviness, it feels consuming. It feels like it will last forever. And that is where I feel like people find themselves. When someone takes their life... 
what is it like when they wake up on that day? That's like the like that is the worst day of their life because it's never going to get any worse than that because that's the last day of their life. They've decided that's the last day of their life. Now, tomorrow could be incredibly different. The week after could be incredible. But if you feel stuck in that moment, you're quite happy to opt out of it because you don't want it to continue. Mm. It, it's 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 accepting that everything's in flux and nothing's permanent. Mm. And I think there's something quite relieving about that. I had a motive. I had a, a, a meditation that I used to use um, when I was in training camp. And sometimes, when you're in training camp, particularly when you get to the UFC level, it's not just about training for the fight. There are all the other factors that come into play that you have to consider. And sometimes, I would feel a bit overwhelmed, and I, f- I would feel like like the world's on top of me, and I I can't deal with all this pressure. So the meditation that I had, I would sit. And I was living at my parents at the time, early on in my career. And I'd sit in my bedroom and I'd, I'd meditate and I'd see myself from above. I'd visualize myself sitting in my bedroom and then I'd zoom out. I'd go out the window if that made more sense to my visualization or whatever. But I'd see my house. Then I'd see the neighborhood. Then I'd see the town. Then I'd see the, the country. And then I would zoom right out until I'm looking down upon the earth and seeing all this activity thriving around me. And, and I don't want this to sound sound negative but it made me feel incredibly insignificant mm. and there's something that's really relieving about that because you realise that you're just a tiny entity on this massive um, organism that's that's all vibing and gelling together and that everything's constantly in flux and that that allowed me to just release all the pressures that I was feeling because whatever I was feeling in that moment was immediately made irrelevant by the fact that I could zoom out and see the bigger picture mm. and that's a difficult thing to do a lot of people can't do that yeah. I always, I always uh, liken it to the the old the typical Australian hats with the corks. Yeah, you know what I mean. If you've got problems everywhere you turn, they're in front of your face. Mm. They're banging into you. They're annoying. They're like, ah, oh, they're everywhere I go. What you need to figure out is to do is take that cork hat off and sit it on the table and spread those corks out and go, okay, I'll deal with that problem now. I'll deal with mm. that problem next. You know. And these visualizations, they may seem kind of silly, but they're, they're easy ways for me to find my brain back to the place that I want it, mm. where I can feel creative and positive again. Because they're just thoughts. And it's what you do with them. It's whether you, you take that thought and you just bring it and sit it right in front of you and let that be all-consuming. It's, yeah. it's easier said than done. I mean, there's certain thoughts that I have which are hard for me to deal with, but you do have to let it go. And, real, and also, this is just like a vehicle. Mm. This stuff that we have, yeah. these particles and water and stuff, it's just a vehicle. You know, our spirit is way greater and it's just using our vehicle and the toolkits of our mind, those thoughts, using them to our advantage. Mm. Um, and I think one other thing that's super important as well is how we how we use social media. I, I keep coming back to it. It's something that I'm trying to get better at because I still get as a sensitive person I still get affected by what people say, but you got to you got to have it's got to work for you, you know. And you've you've been in the public eye for a long time now. Um, these people that keep chasing a blue tick and likes and everything else is there a there's a there are a lot of pitfalls in doing that, right? Mm. Yeah, especially because there's no if there's no real reason for it. If if all you're doing is seeking approval then you're always going to be trying to seek approval because you're never going to get it. You yeah. know what I mean? You, you're never going to get it. That's the reality of it because you're always looking outside of yourself. Yeah. And that approval from from external factors is, is probably never going to come. Even if you surround yourself with people that believe in you, until you believe in yourself, 
you question the integrity of all those people. Mm. It's, it's a funny thing. I mean, and it's very similar is when I first started going out to America to train. Like after the training sessions, people have come up to me and go, oh, it was a good session today. Your low kicks look really good. Or you take down the, well, nobody has my take down defense. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, that, that particular skill that I was watching you work on last week, you've used it this week. That mm. was incredible. I was brought up in the football mentality where you walk into the gym and you're, you're shit. How dare you walk on the mat with us? We're going to beat the hell out of you. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like nobody would be complimentary to each other. So when yeah. I went out to America and people were being nice to me, I'm like, are you, are you fucking with me now? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I feel, I'm questioning <laughs> you. Like you're being nice to me, but I'm questioning you because I don't believe what you're saying. Yeah. And the problem's on my part there. Yeah, and that's a self-confidence thing, you know. That I've, I've I've had conversations about it this week with people, like confident people surrounding you doesn't necessarily create a confident person. You have to yeah. find that approval within yourself, mm. otherwise you're never going to feel that approval from anybody else. Yeah, I've really struggled with my parents not not approving of my mixed martial arts journey from practicing at like an amateur level, and then it's becoming. It was my goal to make it my the way that I would buy f- food yeah. you know and pay the bills and um and i've never got it mm. and at, at the moment where i was like i don't really care if you don't get it because it serves me really well yeah you know and and i and also i felt like i was in a position where i was helping a community mm-hmm. so it's i'm giving as much as i was getting it certainly back then i was probably giving way more than what i was getting yeah. um Intangible terms. I think what it was giving back to me was great. It made me feel like I had a real place um, with this group of people. But it took me a long time to, to keep like, oh, look at this. Look at this fight. Look at this person. Let me tell you a story about these people and this environment and, and, and all of that. And it just, they're never going to care. Mm. Like, it was never their thing, but that's okay. But it wasn't okay at first, and I really struggled with that. Yeah. And until I stopped doing that, so okay, yeah, no, I've. Why, why are you looking for approval from that? And we, I mean, when I finished a Cage Warriors uh, show, Josh Palmer and I used to be trawling through things. What do people think? Mm-hmm. If I did that now with the UFC, <laughs> I'm going to find people that hate me. Yeah. And again, I, I sort of struggled a little bit with that before, but now I'm, I'm much more at peace with that. It. From certain people, it would hurt more, I guess. But, you know, we all have moods and our vulnerability uh, is at a different level. But, yeah, being able to deal with that a lot better and having it, you know, there are certain places where it's worth looking at and somewhere it's absolutely not. Mm. Twitter is not. Yeah, It's a good place to have conversations with people for me, but it's probably not where I should try and assess my performance of what I'm like as a broadcaster. You know? Yeah, it, I, I feel like I've almost built in... I've, well, I've not necessarily built in. I've developed a filter. I've grown a filter within my head. So as I'm reading through things, if I see a negative comment, I can immediately disarm the person by pitying them. I read the negative comment. I'm like, oh, man, you must be having a terrible day. I'm mm. sorry you're having a terrible day. I forgive them immediately and scroll past it. Mm. And that comment no longer lives in my subconscious. And as soon as I was able to develop that filter, I was able to release people from that and not carry that weight with me. Mm. It's a it's a difficult thing to do, you know. We're, we're always looking at. You've got to try and expect a kid to do that now, though. Young men and women yeah. have got to try and train themselves to do that, which is so tough. Yeah, like, I haven't yeah. got that down. No, you know that's so yeah. tough. 
it, it is it, I, yeah I, I'm not a parent and at some point I would like to be but the world that, that kids are coming into nowadays is not the world that we came into no. as kids you know it, it's a very different entity and, and the interactions are, are very different you know the way that people can access you this so I always think I always think this how can someone have such a strong opinion of me when they've not stood in front of me and looked me in the mm. eye I don't know anybody, I mean, I'm sure they exist, I don't know anybody that's looked me in the eyes genuinely and has such a strongly negative opinion of me. Mm. They either like me and are into what I'm doing or they're just not bothered. Mm. They're the two states. Anything other than that, if you have a strong opinion about somebody you've never met, you need to release them from that because you're probably, you're probably reading into something that's not actually true. I mean, a lot of people think that I'm a very different person to how I am. Like my mum always comments because she looks after kids so she gets the parents coming and they're like is that your son like he's not how I thought he was like because they've seen me screaming at Bruce Buffer when he's announcing my name mm. you know mm. and like you, you you can't you don't know somebody unless you know somebody you don't know somebody unless you sat in front of them and had a conversation and looked them in the eyes and if I've had unless I've had that interaction with somebody I release them from their judgement of me because it's not a judgement on me it's a judgement on themselves and ultimately if it's a negative one I can only feel sorry for him. Mm. Profound, my friends. It's all about learning, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. 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 And these conversations are what learning is about. Exactly. Know? I appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. Anytime. Cheers. Well, what did you think about that? Always honest words from Dan. As I said in the intro, he's a very thoughtful, considered person. And it was very interesting to hear his take on all things masculinity particularly from a man that used to fight inside an octagon and hopefully we will get to see him do it at least one more time as well so this was the very first interview of the journey of discovery podcast what did you think did you like the length of it did you like the fact that I was covering a particular subject rather than going through some kind of biographical interview let me know subscribe for more plenty more to come by the way I have a whole list of people that I will be calling soon to secure for the podcast I have already visited Liverpool and went and spent a day with Darren Till not sure where that video is going to be released because Darren's people were interested in that but I will keep you posted I'm sure that we will have the audio on this podcast, though, that you can grab on iTunes. I also caught up with vegan fighter Tim Barnett, also from Liverpool. That was fascinating. Learned a lot of stuff there. That one coming your way very soon as well. Well, that wraps it for this very first episode of The Journey of Discovery. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and I will see you next time. Peace. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.